Hey, good morning. I understand there's a football game later on, but it's like four hours away, so I've got, I've got plenty of time to fill, right, all of that space. No worries. I was, yeah. Well, uh, we are in the middle of um, this series on the Sabbath in all of Scripture, and, and so we, we are exploring the the spiritual discipline of stopping and slowing. And as a church, as the people of God who are made in his image and and transformed in, in the likeness of his son every day, day by day, one of the long lost and, and oft forgotten calls on our life is to reorder our our life and our time and our rhythms around this seven-day process that is really about glorifying God in everything that we do and, and working hard, yes, to fulfill our mission to make disciples of him and, and bless the world in our work, but also to enjoy him, to rest in, in what he does, to sit down and realize that an unyielding busyness and hurry and hustle, that is not the way of Jesus. Instead, God gives us this gift called Sabbath to stop and to observe the works of God and to join him in saying, it is good. Now, as we've been working through this, and, and we started about three, three, four weeks ago now, and we, we've been hearing Jesus and his words in Matthew, come to me all who are weary, I will give you rest, and then the creation story in Genesis, and, and, and how Yahweh provided for Israel through the desert, and then gave them these commands in the Torah, and, and as we've been going through here, just a few of the things that I've been reflecting on as we've, we've gone through. One, I think the sacred moment of Sabbath, as we've said, it's more about looking back than it is looking forward. If I use my day off to catch a break so that I can work more, and my day off is filled with guilt about my lack of productivity or efficiency, man, what could I be doing right now with my time? Then I'm not working in order to rest. I am resting in order to work. There's no completion. There's no satisfaction. There's no trust in anyone but me. But Sabbath is about a finished work. It's not about the unfinished things. It's about the finished things. And because it's about the finished things, ultimately it comes down to our trust in God as the provider and the healer and the sustainer. Number two, Sabbath requires vulnerability. It exposes weakness. It makes obvious our limitations. It obliterates pride because when we rest, we are, we are telling the whole world that we are not inexhaustible gods who are endlessly building and endlessly networking and endlessly expanding and fighting and struggling, but we are merely human, limited and restricted. And yet, at the same time, that humanity, being made, created as humans, is exactly what we have been striving for this whole time. All of our work and our effort is to realize our potential as human beings. And yet to be human is to be limited, to be in, like, beings who rest. To be a restful human is exactly as God made me to be, so that I may rest with him as he rests with me. And three, this is is the third observation. Um, There is something about the command of Sabbath that somehow makes possible the other Ten Commandments. 
Now, bear with me as I explain that. Think about this for a second. How do you put God first? How do you keep from idol-making? How do you keep his name sacred on your lips? You have to pause. And you dwell in the sacred moment that he made for you. And then also, how do you resist anger and lust and greed and envy and betrayal of other human beings? You find your rest and your satisfaction through time in the Sabbath. By pausing, you find you are content in everything and you have everything that you need in Jesus. And so the Sabbath reminds us as we rest, as we dwell, as we worship, that that we are reminded of who we are and what we have and how we live. And, And in that, we are able to love God more easily and readily and we can love people more easily and readily. So there's something about that Sabbath as it's, it's right in the middle that actually empowers and enables our ability to both love God and love others. It's, it's the key to unlocking our fulfillment of the Ten Commandments is in Sabbath. There's a reason why I think in that way that that Yahweh tells the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai that the Sabbath observation is for all time. Not just for a limited space, not for a season, but for all time. It's God's way of creating space for us to love God and others with all of our being. The original reformer, Martin Luther, uh, said this, He said, the spiritual rest which God particularly intends in this commandment is this. That we not only cease from our labor and trade, but much more. That we let God alone work in us, and that we do nothing of our own with our own powers. Another reformer, much later on, Mr. Abraham Lincoln, said this. As we keep or break the Sabbath day, we nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope by which man rises. Man, there's a lot that rides on our dependency and our trust and our commitment to keeping this this sacred moment set aside for what God had planned for it. So we're going to jump into this biblical story, and today we're going to look at something really, really different. There's there's not going to be any mention of the seventh day. It's it's a little bit different. No uh, mention of that, that command for the Israelites. And it's a passage that's not going to show up in any uh, any, any book on Sabbath rest, and I have looked. It's not there. But what happens here, and this is why I'm bringing it to you this morning, is a very Sabbath way of doing things. So here's the big idea. While God invites us to rest and to prepare our hearts regularly for this moment, There is another side of Shabbat. Shabbat meaning the Hebrew word for Sabbath. To stop, to cease, to rest, to celebrate. It sometimes requires a violent act of putting to death anything that distracts and deters from a real relationship with God. It requires an attitude of urgency and a willingness to do whatever it takes to recover it. As I'm, as I'm going through and I'm realizing this, I recognize that Sabbath is more than just a day. It is a way of life. Every day, making this conscious decision to end the hustle and hurry and to return to just dwelling with the Father. 
It is rooted in an act that is, is ingrained in our understanding of what it means to follow. And if you're, you've been with us for any amount of time, following Jesus is pretty much the core thing that we do here. That's really what we're all about. How are we following Jesus and making more followers of Jesus? And, and one of those steps that comes in with the idea of following is this act of repentance. Sabbath is very much built in this idea of repentance. So what does that mean? If you are willing to even approach this idea, to do whatever it takes to bring a, a sense of peace and, and wholeness to, uh, to your relationship with the holy God, it will require three things. You need to return. You need to reform. And you need to revere. You need to return, reform, and revere. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into our, our text today. And, and uh, I'm going to, you're probably going to want your Bibles out for today. We're going to be kind of all over the place in this one particular area. Father, we just thank you for, uh, once again, the opportunity to open up your word, to hear uh, you speaking to us and revealing your character and nature to us. To in, not just inspire us to live, but, but to fall in love with who you are. Show how much you value and care. How much, so much of your nature and character is about self-sacrifice and, and giving up of yourself for another. Laying down your own life so that others may live. Seeking out another's best Interests. And so as you are always having our best interests in mind, we just thank you for that. And we dwell in that gift this morning. Help us, Father, as we read, as we listen, as we seek to understand, and as we uh, take inventory of our own hearts this morning. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I strongly encourage that you have them today, go ahead and open them up to 2 Kings. Chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back uh, that, that we can get for you. If you need one, you can just raise your hand. We'll come grab it uh, uh, for you. Somebody will. Um, otherwise, you can look to the person next to you. Uh, there will be some scriptures up on the screen, but, but really you're going to want to kind of see this to, to get the big picture of the story that we're in. So we're in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. That's kind of the basic area that you want to be hanging out in. 22 and 23. So here's where we are in the overall story of, of Scripture. As you know, we've kind of been tracing this from from Genesis on through, and, and we left Israel right at, the, right at the edge of the Jordan River, and they're about to cross into this, this land that God had promised them. And they're setting out on the edge, and they're about to, they've been leaving behind wilderness and poverty and slavery, and they walk through all of this, and now they're heading into this land that has promised them. It's called this land flowing with milk and honey, prosperity and and blessing and richness and and they're just going to be they're just going to be able to enjoy all this land and so Yahweh retells them the law in this way of saying listen this is only going to work if you and I were on the same page we're making a covenant promise together you're going to be my people a kingdom of priests who declare my name, who set apart yourself so that the world may know who your God is. In return, I will be your God. I will grant you blessing, favor, security, peace. I will watch over you. I will be with you. There is no God like me. I will make sure of it that they know. Even then, though, 
Yahweh knows that his people are merely humans and that they're prone to going by different paths. And it's interesting, at the very end of of the book of Deuteronomy, um, Yahweh points out, he says, uh, even as I warn you now, even as I tell you about all these promises that are going to be made, I, I know that you are going to break this covenant. I'm making this promise with you. I know you're going to break it. You're going to forget about me. You will fashion your own gods. You will commit injustice against people, and you will be too occupied, too busy to dwell with me. I know this is going to happen. It's going to mess you up. But God says, one day, one day down the road, you will come to your senses and you will return. And when you return, guess what? The promise will be back. You will find you will be restored. I'm always going to be here for you. You will leave. You will break the covenant. You will walk away. I will always be there. I will always be there for you when you return. And so what happens? Yahweh predicts it. The very next story is, is the, um, the books of Joshua and Judges. Joshua leads the armies of Israel in, and they, take, they start conquering the world, uh, but they still struggle to believe. And then the book of Judges, and, and in Judges, it's constant. Read the book of Judges. It's almost like it's just a sad story. Like there's cool battles in there. There's cool victories of Judges. But most of all, what's the big idea? Israel just keeps blowing it constantly. They need Judges to help pull them out of these messes because they just keep blowing it on their own. Finally, after all of this time, the the people come back and they go, we don't want a judge anymore. We want a king. We want a king to rule over us. And the prophets and the judges are like, you don't want a king. The king is going to bring you back to Egypt. They're going to enslave you, can strip you to build things. They're they're just going to mess everything up. They're going to be building their own kingdom for their own glory and purposes. And the people said, no, we want a king. So they, they, they do, and they keep, they keep bringing them back. And, and at one point, it seems like this might work out because this man named David finally approaches the throne, and he seems to kind of get everything back in order, and he's messed up for sure, but, but things seem to be working out okay. But then what happens? Eventually, it doesn't take very long, Greed and power and this need for our own security and protection, they they divide the nation in two. And Israel takes the north and Judah takes the south. And and, and from there we have this divided kingdom that's just split and just messed up for years. Now fast forward 300 years into the future. That's where we are today. We have this king now that's named King Josiah. And he is ruling over the land And he became the king when he was eight years old. And I don't know what it was, maybe the fact that he came on as eight, but I think at eight years, he's like, you know what? I humble enough to know this is not going to be about me. He's a king that out of all of the kings that it states, he walks in all of the ways of his ancestor David and did not turn to the right or to the left. He is a good king. Now, 18 years into his reign, Josiah is 26. And and in the high priest in Jerusalem, he's in the temple. He's doing his job, working, pulling out the rituals. And I think this is hilarious. He pulls out this ancient text. He looks at it and goes, hey, King, King Josiah, look what I just found. It's the Torah. I've never seen this before. The books of the law... The, the, the law that is about the covenant promises of God that shows the redemptive history and nature and how Israel is supposed to be called, it's been lost for ages. They've continued on without it. The high priest discovers it and goes, oh yeah, the Torah, that's right. This is what we're supposed to be following. Man. He reads the words to the king, and the king has never heard this before. He has never heard. He knows about Yahweh, of course. There's this big, massive temple attributed to him right in the center of Jerusalem where he rules. He knows about Yahweh. He believes in him. He probably offers sacrifices to him all the time. 
but he knows nothing about this covenant that his people swore to their God. So let's pick up the story in in chapter 22, verse 11. The priest Hilkiah has just read the Torah in the presence of the king. It says this in verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shar. Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, the court secretary, Shaphan, and the king's servant, Isaiah. Az- <laughs> Sorry, my Hebrew is rusty. Go and inspire of Yahweh for me, inquire of Yahweh for me, the people in all Judah, about the words in this book that have been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. Josiah tears his clothes. He is grieved by where they have come. His nation has, they've kept themselves busy for years upon years. Religious rituals and traditions and political alliances and building projects and actions and activities that were fine and they worked to to increase the wealth and prosperity and security of the kingdom. But in that time, the busyness served another purpose. They kept the actual real traditions of, like, commands of Yahweh at bay. Commands that that God brought in there so that they would be leading a deeper life with God, greater focus on God, a truer worship of God. And so what they did was they took God's role as this active partner and participant in the blessing of Israel, and they, they just removed him from the equation. And so God, Yahweh, becomes almost more like a, like a lucky charm, like a symbol of their fortune and favor. Oh, we're so great because Yahweh's on our side, and yet Yahweh has absolutely nothing to do with it. The king then gathers all the leaders and all the people to Jerusalem, and he reads the covenant laws to them. And he promises that within, with everything that he has left, he will return to God. Verse, um, verse 3, 20, chapter 23, verse 3. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in Yahweh's presence. And in your Bibles, when you see the word LORD in all caps, that's, that's for the name of God, Yahweh. So when I read it, it's my own personal conviction. I, I, just inter- I just switch out the word Yahweh for Lord. He made a covenant in Yahweh's presence to follow Yahweh and keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart, and with all his soul, in order to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book, all the people agreed to the covenant. The first thing that Josiah and his people do is they return. They return to what God originally meant, and they realize that where they have gone is not right. Judah still had the temple, right? They still had high priests. They still had sacrifices and feasts and rituals. They had all kinds of things that, that on the surface, on the outside, looked like a thriving community of God. And there was no relationship at the same time. No real relationship with God. I was reading one author um, that was talking about this same idea of saying, like, let's say you were, say you're on a desert island and you 
you had nothing but the Bible to guide and, and inform your understanding of, of, of God and Jesus and his church. And you were reading this thing and going, man, this must be, oh, what it would look like to dwell in the church of God together. And then you come back and you walk into a church building. Would it look like what we have in our buildings? Would, would, would this picture of church look like what we have today, what we practice? It's an interesting question. What is it that's different in, in our times? Are, we, are there things that we do that, that, that are, are good and, and helpful and, and, and keep us busy, but they, they aren't necessarily rooted in that relationship with God, informed by these commands in Scripture? You can attend church, you can listen to preachers, and you can sing worship songs and eat at potlucks and take communion, and you can miss out on the relationship with the living God, it is possible. In all of the activity and and, and the hustle and the busyness and the striving for legacy and security and influence and self-righteousness, God can easily become nothing more than a token of your belief system. a distant being that you attribute your work to. But in, real, in reality, he's nothing more of, than a figurehead. You are the captain of your own ship. Returning in this way of Sabbath means that we are willing to strip down the traditions in order to discover the true command. Now, when I say tradition, what I mean is an expression, just a mode of carrying out the biblical commands that would facilitate following God. But the traditions are not the commands. I've, said it, I've heard it said before that the church is best served when it operates by timeless truths and timely methods. Timeless truths, timely methods. When those methods over time become more important to us than the truths, then we have lost our way. Because if the truth falls away, then all we're left with are what? The methods, the traditions, the rituals and the activities and the programs and the buildings and the busyness. And so whether Jesus is a part of it or not almost becomes moot. I become the central figure of my faith, not Jesus. I do stuff because I am supposed to and not because it actually glorifies God, not because I am already satisfied with him, but because it increases me and my legacy. In what ways have you become the central figure of your What is it that has become so important to your way of life that has progressively and gradually pushed Jesus out to the margins? Where the things of of Jesus have grown strangely dim in the light of your own glory. Now it might be some aspect, some tenant, some piece of the Christian religion, but it, it might be something else. It might be your schedule. It might be your, your house. It might be your family. It is, it's the thing that you take pride in the most. The thing that, that you feel like, the thing that you take credit for having it all together. It might not be a mess, but my schedule is on lock. My, my work life is a disaster, but my house is my family is, um, is, is chaos, but at work, I rock the house, right? It's the thing that we take pride in the most, that we take credit for, for having it all together. And it's the one thing that in all of this Sabbath talk, as we're talking about what will it take to reorder your life around rest, 
and recuperation and, and satisfaction in him and worship of him. It's the one thing when you're looking at and you're desperately trying to figure out how I can reorder things and work it all out to where that part stays intact. God, I will do anything you want, except I'm not touching this, because this thing I feel like I've got, you can have everything else. The rest of it's a mess, but this part's there. Have you ever wondered if maybe the re- why the rest of things are a mess is because our focus, our aim is about preserving that at all costs? And it doesn't matter how good or nice or fine it is. If it causes you to to lose sight of following Jesus, then it should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to grieve. How could I let blank take my eyes off of the prize of a life with Jesus? And it's like we talk about in follow. And if you've never been in a follow mentorship, start today. Go talk to TJ. Find a men- we'll get you a mentor. We'll print you a book. You start right away, okay? But it's like we talk about in follow. Repentance starts with grieving our sin. You cannot follow until you've come to realize that you've been going the wrong way. As you look and you read and you, you recognize who this God is and you look up around you and go, how did I miss this? Where have I been going this whole time? We grieve. And as we grieve, the Holy Spirit turns our hearts. To, to repent literally means that we are turned in one direction, in another direction turns our hearts and our heads back toward his promises. Godly grief is that sorrow and despair that causes our souls to return to him. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be able to return to him? Return, reform, and revere. The second part of the way of Sabbathing, this way of life about Sabbath is to reform. And now by reform, what I mean by that is a radical reshaping of your way of life around the way of Jesus, around the person and work of Christ. It is not merely enough to merely to simply declare that you are going to keep the commands of God. Israel does this all the time. Have you read that? Of course. And it, it, he says, whatever, whatever you said, we will do. Whatever you, whatever you told us to do, we will do. Well, like I said last week, every time my kids say that, I, I know they're not, they don't mean it. What did I say? I don't know. But you said whatever I said you will do. Yeah. What did you say? What did I say? I don't know. It's not just enough to say that you're going to do it. Israel does this all the time, and it does them no good. When they come and they, they shout and with one voice, all that you said we will do, it sounds really great in the moment. Everybody's super inspired and seems really excited about their, their role now in this, this covenant. But really what it is, and, and Lewis makes this great argument, but he says it's really about fantasy. It's not here. It's not this deep-seated conviction that you're going to be following the Lord. It's more rooted in this fantasy. Well, if everything goes right, I'll follow Man, in a perfect world, I'd just be following God all the time, right? I don't really believe it here, and I don't really believe it here, but, but out there, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Man, I will keep God's promises. It's fantasy. You can promise to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you can sing songs about it, you can read scriptures about it. You can share testimony about how good you're doing at it. But if your life does not reflect this reality, if your heart does not back up your mouth, do you really have any chance of keeping the promises? It requires everything. 
following him requires everything. Actually, experiencing a true Sabbath requires every part of you, holding nothing back. First you return, but then you have to reform. Now, man, Josiah, wow, this guy radically reshapes the way of life in Judah around what God told him to do. Holy cow. It's, it's, it's drastic, okay? Uh, Judah it was, at the time, they were in this state of religious pluralism that had become way back with Solomon and Rehoboam. And, and what had happened was there was this temple in, in the middle of Jerusalem to Yahweh. Big source of pride and happiness. But over time, as other people would come in, they would, they would be on their way out of the kingdom, and people would be like, hey, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving the city? Why are you leaving Judah? And they're saying, well, listen, my family has a devotion and allegiance to this God, and so I'm going to go out to that other country because they have an Asherah pole or a, a, a temple for Baal. And so we're going to go and, and worship there. And so what the kings and the regents and the governors would do is be like, wait a second. You mean you're just going, just because they have those things? Well, what if we were to have a pole at the gate? Would you stay in the country? Well, sure. So they would. Well, what if we had, what if we had, you, you, need, you need to go visit the cult prostitutes in your religion? Well, what if we just kept some cult prostitutes in the temple? Would you stay behind? Sure. So that's what they did. What it would it take to preserve their thing? And, and so, and the reason why is if I, if, if, if Judah could keep high places and altars and priests for, for gods like Baal and Asherah and Moloch and on all of these idols, it, why would they have them in there? Politics, economy. If you have an Asherah pole in your city, people won't have to travel to another city to worship it, and so they'll stay and work and spend money, and they'll fight in your armies, and they'll defend your borders. It's smart business, and it's smart foreign policy. But it grieves God. Now, Josiah sees this with new eyes. Remember, he's been king for the last 18 years. He has dwelt with these things in his community. But now suddenly he sees these commands that there is no other God before me. There are no idols. And he gets to work. Man. Verse, uh, 20, chapter 23, verse 4. Then the king commanded the high priest Hilkiah and the priests of the second rank and the doorkeepers to bring out of Yahweh's sanctuary all the articles made for Baal, Asherah, and all the stars in the sky. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he did away with the idolatrous priests and kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense at the high places in the city of Judah and in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. <coughs> now, I, I, I want you to see something. Right here in the middle of this whole process of reforming, let's go back. Josiah, he, he has, he burns all the relics that were inside of the temple. And then, and then watch what he does. He does away with all the priests that the old kings of Judah had used to keep their country strong. Now, that verb, does away with, do you know what it is? It's Shabbat. It's Shabbat. What does Shabbat mean? Sabbath end, to cease, to rest, to celebrate. There is this violent, urgent part of Sabbathing, of Shabbat. Josiah Sabbaths idolatry in the land. He literally ends it with him. And he Sabbaths violently. Man, let's, uh, can I read the rest of it for you? Okay. 
He brought out the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple out to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. He burned it at the Kidron Valley, beat it to dust, and he threw the dust on the graves of the common people. He also tore down the houses of the male cult prostitutes that were in Yahweh's temple in which the women were weaving tapestries for Asherah. Then Josiah brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He tore down the high places of the city gates at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. The priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh. Instead, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He defiled Tophheth, which is in the Ben-Himon Valley, so that no one could sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire to Moloch. That was happening. He did away with, same word, Shabbat. He Shabbats the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They had been at the entrance of Yahweh's temple in the precincts by the chamber of Nathanmelech, the eunuch. He also burned the chariots of the sun. The king tore down the altars that the kings of Judah had made on the roof of Ahaz's upper chamber. He also tore down the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courtyards of the Lord's temple. Then he smashed them there and threw their dust into the Kidron Valley. The king also defiled the high places that were across from Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Destruction, which King Solomon of Israel had built for Ashtoreth the abhorrent idol of the Sidonians for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. He broke the sacred pillars into pieces, cut down the Asherah poles, and filled their places with human bones. He sets fire to idols. He defiles sacred places. He breaks pillars. He grinds the high places to dust. He slaughters the priests. Josiah obliterates everything that is not Yahweh until there is no sign of any allegiance to any God but Yahweh. Then and only then he returns to Jerusalem. Now that seems harsh. At first. That seems harsh to us, yeah? It's passages like this in the Bible that we struggle with sometimes because they're violent and they're destructive and they're full of death and it doesn't seem to be very loving or forgiving or compassionate. And we go, wait a second, if I, if God is supposed to be this God of love, then how did he allow for all of this stuff to happen? Why, why so violent and destructive? That seems to almost be counter to this God. But here's the thing. We need God to be a loving God. And it is also that love, that compassion, that understanding, that makes God such a just God. Because we want God to be a loving God, but we also want him to be a just God. We want God to be kind and generous and peaceful. But man, do we not also want God to right wrongs and restore hurting and broken people and to beat back evil and to reestablish good? We need God to be just as well as loving. Now here's the other reality. And this is the thing ultimately that Josiah realizes as he comes to grip with this, and we're going, this is what I'm promising I'm going to do. This is what Yahweh has promised me as a people to be obedient to. And as he looks about, and he looks at all of these ways in which his people have left behind their God, he realizes this, that there can be nothing standing in the way of a relationship with his God. You can grieve your sin, you can be disappointed with the fact that you have put other things in way of relationship with him. But if you don't do anything about it, then it's just sad. It's just commiseration. That's what Paul later refers to as worldly grief. There's no change of heart. There's no change of direction. There's just disappointment. Godly grief is different. 
Godly grief says, I have been playing church for too long. I have been claiming a relationship with Jesus and keeping busy, but I'm not growing. I'm not changing. I'm still knee-deep in selfish desires and motivations, but I'm done. I'm not going to wait any longer. The time for change is now. In the past, I was really, really good at putting on the show of Christianity. Uh, and, and here's how you do it. Here's how you, here's how you do the show of Christianity. Uh, you serve in ministry with high visibility so that what you do is well seen and observed. So, and it really helps if it's something that's rehearsed and practiced, okay? You don't want to get up there and then suddenly be vulnerable, right? Can't do that. So some sort of ministry that's high visibility. Everybody gets to see how good you are. Uh, you dress nice, say the right things, and you never talk about your sins, especially the ones that no one ever wants to hear about. You keep those to yourself, and you tell God, and, and you tell the people who are affected by those sins, actually affected by it, that, that you're working on it. It's something I'm working on. I just need more time. And you can do that for years. You can do that for years. And you can even convince yourself in the midst of it that you are in a good spot with Jesus because of all of these things that you can do and you attribute that to your, your contribution to your relationship with God. And say, man, the, the scales balance in my favor for sure. I'm just going to keep working on these sins. I'm going to just keep working on these things. I don't want anybody to know about it. I don't want anybody to hear about it. Totally going to mess up what I've built and erected and set up for myself. I'm just going to keep these things back here. And it wasn't until I was faced with losing absolutely everything that I realized that I had taken advantage of the grace that God and others had offered me as if I was somehow entitled to that grace. Like I deserved it or earned it. Grace, by definition, is something you don't deserve. You're not entitled to. And once it becomes entitlement, once it becomes deserved, it is no longer grace. And when I realized that, I finally was broken and taken down to my knees at that point. It was a tear-my-clothes sort of moment. And I realized, finally, dummy. That, that God wants nothing standing in the way between me and him. It was radical, it was final, and it was now or never. I had to Sabbath once and for all, and I had to put an end to the sin that stood between me and God. And I will tell you, the most vulnerable, humbling, broken type of thing that I have ever done in my entire life and I experienced the most freedom and, and comfort and true grace as, as I had never experienced before in my life. But it required a killing of myself, a putting to death of my own selfish desires to come to that point. And I will say, when we, when we talk about our sin, our gradual sin elimination, being this process, what we're really trying to say is, in my will, with my willpower, I will eventually figure this out, solve the equation, make it work, and eventually get better. So when we talk about our, our progressive, I've heard some people talk about how progressive sanctification is about. Sanctification is this word of just becoming more like God. How progressive sanctification is how I sin less and less, and I become more morally perfect and greater and greater, and I improve, and I'm getting closer and closer to God in my actions, my moral thought patterns and activities. And so I, as I do that, the, the secret thing as we talk about increasing in that is we're also gaining more and more favor with God because how we're able to do this more and more on our own. This is actually what I think progressive sanctification is. As I realize more and more that I cannot do this on my own. 
that I am a failure in my own ways, that my willpower will never measure up to do this sort of thing, that I on my own cannot build a kingdom of my own, that I lose myself and I die more and more to myself, what we find is that our becoming more like Christ increases at the same time. It's more about the humbling process, the putting to death of those things in our own side, in our own ways, that ends up bringing us deeper into that relationship. It's not about how good I am, how much better I am at following the rules and the codes. It's really more about my coming to realization that I can't do it, that I've been living for myself for far too long. And when you finally (laughs) reach that point, you will experience a Sabbath as you have never experienced What is it going to take to recover your relationship with God? Whatever it is, do it. Put an end to it. Shabbat. Now there's one more point. I'm going to get through this quickly, okay? Reform, or return, reform, and revere. The last one, revere. And and I want to get this one because it's like the most important part of the whole thing, okay? Um, Now Judah, we'll get back to Judah once Judah had come to its senses and, and, and Josiah goes through and just eradicates idol worship once and for all, then, and only then, can they experience these, these moments of Sabbath as they were always meant to experience. And so we get to verse 21 in, in chapter 23. The king commanded all the people, observe the Passover of Yahweh your God as written in the book of the covenant. I think this is crazy. No such Passover had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. Judah practices the Passover. This meal of remembrance, of redemption, as they never have before. Now, as I was trying to understand what that meant, commentators will say that um, essentially what they probably mean by this is that it's not that Passover was never practiced. It's that it was typically practiced in a home. So everybody in their respective homes went back and practiced the Passover meal as a family together. And they observed this meal. And it was this quiet ritual reminder of their redemption. And that's fine, but what Josiah came to realize is that this sacred moment needed the whole community seated in reverent awe before Yahweh to fully recognize the moment that they as a people were invited in. Now, I think this is important. Now, I I think Josiah probably, like, he could have just invited everyone to celebrate Passover right away. Oh, shoot, we forgot to have Passover as a community, so so let's fit that in first. Let's make sure we do the meal, and then we'll, we'll work on the idol thing later, right? Let's make sure that we hit the observances. Let's make sure that we do the, the easy practice of, of just coming together and, and, and practicing this, this moment of remembrance, right? The idle thing seems real tough, so we'll, we'll work on the, those other things later. We'll get to those things as we go. But Josiah realizes something central. That worship, true reverence and awe before the Lord, requires a heart that is unburdened by anything else but God. It requires our full attention. Reverence is the final step of Sabbath. It's not the first step. It's the final step. Stop, cease, celebrate in that order. Stop what you are doing. Put an end to those distractions and the things that stand between you and your God, and then you can worship him freely and fully with all that you have, with your whole 
undivided heart. That's the end goal. True, complete worship and reverence and awe. That requires preparation. Sabbath reverence requires a preparation. This this sacred moment of God is built on anticipation, on us working to create space within us to experience the work of God for us. You cannot worship without Sabbathing first. So how, let me ask you this question. How How do you prepare to worship God? And I'm not saying you royal, I'm saying you specific. How do you prepare to worship God? Do you just go and do it? Do you spend more time preparing the outside of you than the inside of you? When you are gearing up for Sunday gatherings or Bible studies or home groups, what's your process? What's your, what's your way of preparing? Most of the time, I would, maybe it's this. Do you consider your, your dress and your hair and your countenance? Do you make sure that you pretty up your language with more Christianese and fewer cuss words? Do you do everything that you can to play the game of Christian community? How much of our time do we spend on those things, getting ourselves ready for church? Now let me ask you another question. How much time do you spend preparing your heart to enter the throne room of God? How much of that time of preparation and readying yourself and, and, and preparing in your weeks do you spend getting ready Worship the Lord in your heart. Clearing away the distractions and, and the other idols and putting an end to those things so that you are, have full attention on the Lord. Because remember, the Sabbath is as much for you as it is unto him. We become really good at bringing, I've heard this all the time, you want to bring your best to the Lord, and by bring your best, what do they mean? Dress really nice, always smile, be, have a really good positive attitude, right? If you're gonna smack your kids, do it outside, in the car, before you come in, right? So when you enter these doors, when you walk in the doors, you're a good parent, you're well-dressed, you're respectful in your speech, and you're really happy and smiley, and, and maybe even extroverted. I'm very few of these things in real life. But that's the thing that we make sure we put all of our energy and attention into. What if it was about, not about any of those things, but about preparing our hearts to be able to come and to worship the Lord with everything that we have? What would getting ready look like in that case? What would that require us doing to ready ourselves? Most of the time, I would guess it would require a lot of Sabbath. Putting an end to those things that pull us away so that we can be drawn into the Father, into the throne room. It's not about your hair. It's about your heart. So as we end our time together, like I said, there's, the football game's like three hours away. You guys are fine. We're going to end our time together. Uh, somebody said to me earlier, there's no rule that says you have to preach. There's no, there's no command that says preach a message in 45 minutes. So praise the Lord for that, right? We're going to end our time together in this this sacrament, which is literally a sacred moment. That's actually the word defined that is known as communion, the Lord's Supper. And when Jesus gathered with his followers for one last meal together, they celebrated the Jewish Passover feast. Jesus had been preparing his disciples for three years for this very moment. 
And then he, as he, he breaks the bread and he pours the wine, Jesus declares, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance, not of the Exodus, but of me. Remember, I am the final word when it comes to redemption. Jesus, God incarnate, Yahweh in flesh and blood would do whatever it takes to recover relationship with his people. He has done whatever it takes to be with you. Are you willing to do the same for him? So this morning, I, I'm, I ask you to just prepare your heart to commune with God. Um, it, it's not something that should be instantaneous. It's not something you can do in five minutes. It's something that really should be you should be working on all the time, holding nothing back. Um, I'm going to invite TJ up, uh, and he's going to lead us through uh, our time together this morning.